pop. Six pages later, I was still in verse 19. So we're going to be in Ephesians 1.19, but we're really going to spend most of our time over in John 3. But I'm going to read, let's read all of Ephesians chapter 1, just to have an idea of where we have been and where we are going. <clears throat> Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That was one sentence since verse 5. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. <clears throat> For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, or to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe." According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So last time I was up here, we were in verse 19 and we focused in specifically on that phrase, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? And so Paul prays here that the, the Spirit would train us to rest in the immeasurable greatness of the power of God. Right? We understand that God is both faithful and immeasurably powerful. And so what God has promised, he is faithful to do. He is able to. To do. And so in this, the power of God, we have an infallible security. We have an infallible assurance of our salvation. We have talked a lot about God's plan. The plan for the fullness of time, we saw that in Ephesians 1.10. The mystery of his will, his purposes in verse 9. And so we're okay talking about the sovereignty of God, right? And I wanted us to understand last time that that needs to be more than just a talking point, right? We need to be more than just okay with saying, yes, God is sovereign. 
We need to take that and marry it to our understanding of God's faithfulness. And understand that not only is God sovereign, he is faithful to redeem his people. He is faithful to preserve his people. And last time we also talked about prayer. We looked at the Psalms, right? You remember there are some Psalms that have some disturbing imagery, right? We see David in passionate prayer, praying that God would destroy his enemies. We see David praying that God would take the children of his enemies and put them out on the street. So I ask the question, what are we supposed to do with this? Right, we're not supposed to read these prayers where David prays from a murderer's heart and say, yes, we should do that. That's how we ought to be praying for our enemies, right? Because we looked at the example that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Right, he tells us how we should pray. And in that prayer, we call it the Lord's Prayer. We don't see anything like praying for the destruction of the people that you don't like. So what do we do when we read the Psalms and David says something like, God, I pray that you would dash their children against the rocks. The answer is that your flesh is going to come up with wicked desires like David had. You are going to want horrible things to befall your enemies. In your flesh, you are going to have hatred for people. Right, while we live in this body of flesh, before our final glorification, there is still that sin that remains. And that sin is going to rise up sometimes, and you're going to feel things. And so these prayers in the Psalms, these, we call them imprecatory prayers, they show us that when we have these wicked desires for death, misfortune, and the execution of God's wrath, according to our own will and timing, we can and ought to bring these things before our Father. So on the one hand, I have to tell you, you shouldn't be praying like this. And on the other, I have to tell you, you should be. You shouldn't be intentionally from a heart of malice, from a heart of hatred for people, praying that God would kill them. But when you have those desires, bring them before your Father so that he can take them from you. We also see that praying like this is one of the reasons we probably ought to be praying in private as Jesus instructs, right? On the one hand, we ought not stand on the street corner so that people can see how holy we are in our prayers. And also, there are some things that we pray for that should be kept between us and our Father, right? Then we also talked about Lazarus. Jesus is away, him and the disciples get the news that Lazarus is deathly ill, and Jesus says, okay, and doesn't really do anything. 
He just sits there where they are. And the disciples are like, shouldn't we go do something? And Jesus is like, I'll handle it. Anyway, Lazarus dies. He goes, he gets buried in his tomb. And a few days later, Jesus shows up and uh, Mary loses her mind. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And the point I wanted you to get from this is that Jesus is here now, Mary. It doesn't matter that he wasn't here then, he's here now. Right? And Mary has this idea that it's too late for Jesus to do anything because Jesus, or because Lazarus is already dead. And so I want you to pray like Jesus is here now, church. God in his sovereignty is watching over you and caring for you right now. And so we should be praying like we believe that God has immeasurable power right now. Now, as we get to the second half, not even the second half, the second phrase of verse 19, toward us who believe. I want you first to remember the audience of this letter to the Ephesians. This is written to the Ephesian church who are specifically believers, right? To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So when Paul says toward us who believe, he is, of course, talking about the saints who are in Ephesus, the saints who are here, those of you who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is drawing attention to the unique exercise of God's immeasurable, immeasurable power for the believing ones. Right? We, we recognize that God is immeasurably power broadly and generally, right? God in his providence upholds the working out of the entire universe. But the exercise of his power toward his people, those who believe, is unique. There are specific things that God does for his people that he does not do for anything else. There are specific dispositions that God has for his people that he does not have for anyone or anything else. And this exercise of immeasurable power is the same power mentioned by the Apostle John in what is probably the most famous verse in the New Testament. So let's turn over to John chapter 3. We're going to walk through the first half of John chapter 3 in order to get some good context here about the most popular verse in the New Testament, John three sixteen. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So to briefly tell you where we are going, this toward us who believe, who are the recipients of the immeasurable power of God in Ephesians 1.19, are the very same as the whoever believes in him of John 3.16. 
Now, there's a popular understanding of this verse. If you look out into cultural Christianity and you explore the various interpretations of John 3.16, you will often find that people understand this verse as some sort of declaration of God's sacrificial love presented through Christ to every single person. That it represents some sort of enabling of everyone to respond to some sort of general call, some desire for God, some hope of God that you might receive him. And we have talked before about God's nature as love, right? We understand that God is love. It is who he is. It is his nature, and he cannot not be love. So there's some sense in which all of his actions and dispositions are an expression of this nature, right? But this general sense in which God is love is not what is in view in John 3.16. Instead, it is a particular and intentional exercise of God's liberty to love rather than some sort of incidental or accidental consequence of God's nature displayed generally in his working and in his disposition. What I mean here is that this particular work of love described in John 3.16 is the same work that Paul describes in Ephesians 1.19 when he talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So to get there, to understand what John 3.16 is, we have to back up to the, the beginning of this conversation. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So you, here you have Nicodemus, who is uh, the pastor of the entire nation, right? He is the teacher of Israel. He is one of the Pharisees. And he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, probably by secret, because he did not want to be caught speaking with this Jesus fellow. And he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. That's probably a lie. I think Nicodemus is shooting for a little bait and switch here. I'm going to bait this Jesus guy. I'm going to tell him that we're on his team. We know that you come from God. And so Jesus, seeing right through him, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And of course, we know that Nicodemus does not understand this. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And so here you have the smartest man in Israel asking silly questions. Like, can he enter back into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus should have understood Jesus is probably talking about something else, right? And so Jesus continues, I mean, almost almost with the riddle for Nicodemus, because Nicodemus doesn't get it. 
that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so first, I want to observe that Jesus is setting a distinction. He's separating these two ideas, the two realms, the flesh and the spirit. There's a separation, there's a difference between the natural man and the spiritual man. There's a difference between the man who has not known Christ and the man who does know Christ. Paul outlines this distinction in Romans chapter 8. That which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit. In Romans 8, Paul says, uh, let's see. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus lives according to the flesh. He sets his mind on the things of the flesh. And so when Jesus speaks of spiritual things, saying that you must be born again, Nicodemus has set his mind on the flesh, thinking that he has to somehow come out of his mother's womb again. But those who live according to the Spirit set the minds, their minds on the things of the Spirit. <clears throat> For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's why Nicodemus doesn't understand Jesus. His mind is set on the flesh and it is hostile to the God that stands before him. It does not submit to God's law. You can appreciate the irony of that, right? Nicodemus, the teacher of all Israel, the great law keeper the one who tells us what it means to obey the Torah, has his mind set on the flesh and does not keep the law of God. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So that's Nicodemus. He cannot please God. He does not submit to the law of God, despite being the teacher of the law of God to all of Israel. This is why he does not understand what Jesus tells him. He is born according to the flesh like all men. Born under the curse of his father, Adam. And we each must be born again according to the Spirit. Born under Christ. Jesus continues to confuse Nicodemus in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So this is the new birth. Right? You know when a baby is about to be born, right? Baby's mother is, as the Bible says, great with child. It is time for the baby to be born. You know that it's coming. It is not so with the second birth. Jesus says, 
The wind blows where it wishes. We cannot see it. This work, this new birth, is the work of the Spirit of God, and it is alone the work of the Spirit of God. God pours out his Spirit upon his people when and where he wishes. And just as the wind blows and we cannot see it or know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with God's decree to save his people. Right? God told us how it works. Romans 1, 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Jesus gives us this parable of the sower. He sows the seeds. Some of them go on dry ground. Some of them land on fertile soil. It is not the sower to pick and choose where the seeds go, but it is the work of God to bring the harvest when and where he wishes. So Jesus continues. Nicodemus says, how can this be? And verse 10 is one of my favorite verses here, just because we get a little bit of sort of the the wittiness from Jesus, the sass. (laughs) Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And this is where Jesus, verse 14, Jesus really gets up in Nicodemus' grill. He really gets in his face here. Remember, Nicodemus, the teacher of all Israel, the the world's leading expert on the Torah. Verse 14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So here at verse 14, it becomes really important for us to understand the role of Judaism, the role of Nicodemus' faith in this conversation. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. And Jesus makes a thoroughly Judaistic claim about himself. He says, I am the serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. He points to the symbol of God's salvation that Nicodemus is very familiar with. And Jesus says, that's me. Turn to the book of Numbers. Chapter 21. Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Or they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. You'd think people that wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years would have a little bit of patience. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. You've got to love that attitude. There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Sometimes I feel like that's how my, my children treat dinner. There's nothing to eat. Yes, there is. 
Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many, uh, many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. <clears throat> so the people sin, right? They speak against God, they speak against Moses, they sin. So the Lord pours out his judgment for the sins of the people. He sends these fiery serpents. Fiery serpents will kill you. And something interesting happens here. Remember that the, the sacrifices of the temple are sort of the, the ordinary picture of the satisfaction of God's judgment, right? We read through Leviticus, we read through Exodus, we, re, we read through the law, and there's all these rules about how to do these sacrifices that represent <clears throat> the satisfaction of God's wrath. You sin, you make a sacrifice, you are atoned. But here in Numbers 21, the Lord instructs Moses to erect a serpent such that all you need to do for God's wrath for your sins to be satisfied is look at the serpent. No sacrifice, no atonement, no priest, no temple. Look at the serpent and you shall live. So this is a deviation from the ordinary means of atonement that we see in the sacrifices of the law. And so here Jesus says, I am that serpent. Those marked for death according to the judgment of God for their sins will look upon me and live. Jesus is claiming that his work will circumvent the work of the law for atonement. We go around the works of the law and look upon Christ. And for that, we live. Right? We've been in Hebrews a lot. Hebrews 10. Once again. <clears throat> for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder for sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. <clears throat> In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And in verse 9, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And so, here, Jesus is destroying Nicodemus' entire worldview. Everything that Nicodemus has done, <clears throat> everything that he lives for, the motivation for all of his works, the motivation for everything that he does in his entire life, 
is to please God through working the law. And Jesus says, no, look upon me and live. That's it. I am the serpent that Moses raised in the wilderness. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he is here to bring to nothing the works of the law. The only way to live is to look upon the serpent raised in the wilderness. That is to look upon Christ for the satisfaction of God's wrath. To look upon Christ for the atonement for your sins. And so we have verses 1 through 15 here setting us up to totally destroy Nicodemus' worldview. The world of Judaism is about to come crashing down around the teacher of all Israel. And it is through that lens that we read John 3.16. Jesus is deconstructing Judaism, tearing down the false law-centric view of man's relationship with God that Judaism had become. And now in verse 16... The most popular verse in the New Testament, Jesus is striking at the heart of Nicodemus's very identity. Because Nicodemus believes that because he is a Jew, he is a man of God. Because his father is Abraham, he is a child of God. That Israel are the people of God because of who they are. They are descended from Abraham, so they must be God's people. And that everyone else, these Gentiles, these nasty, dirty Gentiles, are wicked, evil people hated by God. That's Nicodemus' worldview. And here we go. Nicodemus, God so loved the world. Nicodemus, the people of God come from every nation, not solely and uniquely Israel. And God loves his people in this way that he gave his only son, the Christ, that serpent erected in the wilderness that those who look upon him shall have their sins forgiven. And so this serpent raised in the wilderness, this uniquely Jewish image to Nicodemus, is given as the means through which the Gentiles would be saved. This representation of salvation to Nicodemus, the love of God for his people, the Jews, is given as the means through which the people he hates would be saved. It is the means through which the Jews and Gentiles alike, who are God's people, will be saved. And so the immeasurable greatness of God's power that we are talking about in Ephesians 1.19 is the very same power that caused those Israelites to live who looked upon the serpent. It's the very same power that gives eternal life to those who believe. And all these things with the unique and effectual love of God for the salvation of his people. So when we read John 3.16 and see that God 
so loved the world. Remember, it's not God loved the world so much, right? The word so means in this way. This is how God loved the world. And we understand this world to be a deconstruction of the Jewish worldview that only the Jews are the people of God. It's a declaration that the people of God come from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. So naturally, the audience of the Ephesians, the object of God's immeasurable power toward us who believe, must necessarily be the very same believing ones, the whoever believes, the whosoevers of John 3.16. John 3.16 is talking about the people of God. And therefore, God loved the world, that is, his people who are not just from the earthly nation of Israel, but from every tribe, nation, and tongue, in this way that he poured out his wrath for their sins upon his one and only Son. So that those who believe in him, those people he has called his own people, should not taste the death required by the law. That they should not be burdened by the burden required by the law, but they should live freely and eternally in Christ. Okay, but Jesus was just dunking on Judaism, right? So how do we apply this idea, this deconstruction of Judaism to our lives, to our culture? Right, because we're not Jews. Right, we're not the Jews. Judaism isn't super popular here. But the constructs of Judaism that Jesus is refuting in his conversation with Nicodemus are the very same constructs that prop up cultural Christianity. Nicodemus's worldview is the same worldview upheld by the nominal Christian. How? Cultural Christianity places unbiblical expectations upon its people, doesn't it? They either do it by making up new laws, as the Jews were known to do, Right, you want to we- read about some of the weird things that Judaism is today? See how they relate to technology. See how Jews today relate to having a Sabbath day light switch and putting timers on their refrigerators and making sure that on Saturday the light doesn't turn on when I open the fridge. Talk about burden. Being fearing hell for turning on your lights. Cultural Christianity makes up new laws or it relates to things that are actually sinful in ways that are unbiblical. Right? Okay, so you can't be a Christian and listen to Led Zeppelin. Uh Uh-oh. Right? That's just making up new laws, right? You made that up. That's not real. (laughs) But cultural Christianity also relates to things that really are sinful, because there are sins. There are things that you shouldn't do. But cultural Christianity relates to those things in unbiblical ways. For example, you're addicted to alcohol? 
don't be coming around here until you get that straightened out. You don't have a place in our church until you, you know, get your life straight. Right? This is sort of applying biblical principles, right? Alcoholism is a sin. Right? We are warned against that numerous times. But it's applying that in unbiblical ways. Right? We can either make up new laws and push those upon the people, or we could take what is biblical and create unbiblical expectations out of them. So many churches today are just Jewish synagogues with crosses on the walls and pictures of Jesus in stained glass. And they are that way because of the burden of expectation that they place upon their people. Now, don't get me wrong. Like I said, there are things that you shouldn't do. Right? Scripture does regulate. Right? 2 Timothy 3.16, Scripture is profitable for correcting and rebuking. Hey, don't do that. That's in the Bible. Right? But, if your understanding of biblical morality causes you or anyone else to live in fear, doesn't matter how right you are. You're wrong. Let me say it again. If your understanding of biblical morality places a burden upon you or anyone else, it doesn't matter how right your understanding of biblical morality is. You're wrong. Christianity comes with regulation. The New Testament tells us how we ought to live. But the entire point of Christ and the new birth is to live freely apart from this burden of the law. The entire point of looking upon that serpent is to circumvent the works of the law. By faith in Christ to live apart from the fear that comes from having to work for your reward. This is the immeasurable power of God toward us who believe that we can live free from the burden of the law. That we can live free from those unbiblical expectations. Remember, Scripture does tell us what to do, right? And it tells us how to relate to one another when we don't do that. But we cannot live in fear. Right? What did Jesus say? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. If the way you relate to the regulation of the New Testament is to make it burdensome, you're wrong. We cannot live in fear. We must live freely in Christ. And so we look upon the serpent raised in the wilderness. We look upon Christ and live. Not in fear, 
for performing, not in fear of the works of the law, not in fear of judgment. And practically for you, church, not in fear of one another. We cannot place unbiblical expectations on one another. We cannot apply biblical expectations in unbiblical ways. Scripture regulates how we relate to that. Scripture tells us what to do when our brother sins against us. And it is this living in freedom that is the immeasurable power of God. The power of Christ to overcome the law. The power of Christ to satisfy the law toward us who believe. The very same whosoever believes of John 3.16, the people of God. And so, church, I would encourage you to look upon Christ and live. To live freely and to live without fear. Let's pray and then take the Lord's table. Father, we pray that you would give us the peace and the freedom that we have in Christ. Teach us to live freely. Protect us from fear and from burden. And teach us to relate to one another without pushing those burdens on our brothers and sisters. God, we thank you for your word that we can see this and understand this, the power of your spirit that we can read it and know who you are and what you have done. God, as we eat of your table, remind us of your wrath poured out on Christ. Remind us of that satisfaction. Remind us that you were pleased in the work of Christ, and for that you are pleased in us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.